0: Welcome to the CND Podcast. I'm Naima Kalachand and I'm the clinical editor. Today, I'll be speaking to Micken Patel. Mikan is the lead pharmacist for gastroenterology at Imperial College Healthcare NHS Trust. Mikan, so first of all, I wanted to ask you about proton pump inhibitors and if you could tell me if these can be given over the counter and what they're usually used for.
1: So, proton pump inhibitors can be bought over the counter, absolutely, and is very useful for managing heartburn and acid reflux, especially if sort of your first line of pharmacological therapy of alginates or antacids have failed. You know, definitely worth escalating therapy to a proton pump inhibitor in, in those cohort of patients.
0: You mentioned reflux. Could you tell me a bit more about what that is?
1: Absolutely. I mean, reflux is also known as gastroesophageal reflux disease, commonly known as GORD as acronym. is usually a chronic condition where there is a reflux of gastric contents, particularly bile acid and pepsin. So what tends to happen is those contents regurgitate back into the oesophagus, and um, which causes the symptoms of heartburn and acid regurgitation. And it comes under the umbrella term dyspepsia. Now, dyspepsia is thrown around quite a lot as a word, and it often causes confusion as what the term actually means. And when you see in literature, you know, different authors will use the term to mean slightly different things. In simple terms, what dyspepsia really means is a difficulty in digestion. So dis means difficulty in pepsi means digestion so difficulty in digestion now you know if you go and see what it means on a sort of uh, as per rome four criteria they define it as patient having one or more symptoms such as postpranial fullness or early satiation epigastric pain gastric burning which is usually going on for more than three months with sort of the first sign of symptoms for at least six months. VSG stands for British Society of Gastroenterology. They define it as any symptoms referable to the upper GI tract. So broadly speaking, dyspepsia as a term will cover a wide range of upper GI symptoms. Now, GORD is a specific condition under dyspepsia, and there are other diagnoses that we can make under dyspepsia, such as peptic ulcer disease and duodenal ulcer, which is diagnosed through endoscopic procedures, which would actually then come under the term investigated dyspepsia. Now, gourd is also sort of, you know, a multifactorial condition, which is caused by a combination of factors, you know, including increased abdominal pressure or impaired gastric emptying. You know, patients having decreased oesophageal clearance or osophageal sort of hypersensitivity and also sort of lack of neutralizing saliva. So these factors combined can lead to an increase in gourd symptoms and and, and often cause damage to the esophagus. Now the cases that we would see in community pharmacy are those cohort patients which would be defined as uninvestigated dyspepsia and You may see in a nice guidance document, actually, in the first instance, uninvestigated dyspepsia should be treated through community pharmacy colleagues.
0: Okay, and why is it important that this is
1: managed? It's very important to sort of fact find and determine the root cause of reflux because it can really distress patients and lead to sort of poor quality of life, if not managed properly. So like I said, it's very important to fact find and determine the root cause of reflux. So it could be diet related or stress related, or it could be caused by certain medications, or it could be functional. So the management will really be dependent on the likely root cause. So asking the right questions to the patients is absolutely important. Now, poor management of reflux can lead to upper GI bleeds or, or lower GI bleeds, depending on if there is an ulceration, where the ulceration is. And also often leads to poor quality of life, poor quality of sleep, which often affects people in their working lives, etc., etc. So when asking patients, it's important that we find out w- where the location of the symptoms are, what the patient's age is, nature of the pain you know, heartburn is usually experienced behind the sternum region. Is it radiation pain to rule out angina? Uh, The severity of pain? Are there any sort of associated symptoms, for example, vomiting with or without blood? Are there any sort of aggravating or relieving factors? You know, what is the patient's social history? What's their job? Do they smoke a lot or have high intake of alcohol? And The aim is fundamentally to find the root cause and in turn you can then help to manage the symptoms of cord and reduce the risk of recurrence and complications associated with the condition.
0: Can you tell me a bit more about the difference between infrequent and frequent heartburn sufferers?
1: Infrequent can define that as once a week or less often. Frequent would be something at least two days per week for the past four weeks. And anything more than three weeks, really, we should really be considering to refer to the GP because they've had it for a while. As we spoke earlier about the Rome 4 criteria, it's very important that you can have that in the back of your mind, because as per that definition, if you've got any of those symptoms that we said earlier for at least three months or the first signs were approximately six months ago, then again, it's an indication that this could be something more chronic. But anything more than three weeks, and it's not managed through the treatment you're providing, um, and you've escalated the treatment, then, yeah, we should be thinking to refer to the GP.
0: Can you tell me about the red flag symptoms that we would need to look out for in community pharmacy?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I often use the acronym ALARM. So A stands for anemia, L stands for loss of weight, A stands for anorexia, R for recent onset of progressive symptoms, M malenia. So there, you're sort of you know common red flag symptoms. But you know there are others such as dysphagia, hematemesis, persistent vomiting, and treatment failure there are these sort of other symptoms also to bear in mind and refer the patient as soon as possible. Now, there are other symptoms that could help navigate how to refer the patient if needed or manage the patient in community pharmacy. You know, if if it's a heartburn as a major symptom and there's sort of vague pain, you know, the patient's sort of belching or bloating, then A treatment with the combination of alginate and antacid tends to suffice. And then, you know, if that doesn't help, then you would escalate. But, you know, symptoms, patients are really complaining of pain that often wakes them up at night. You know, you've got to think, could this be duodenal ulcer, especially if someone's complaining of pain when the stomach is empty, which often could mean it could be a gastric ulcer. So it's quite important that we have those things at the back of the mind when we're having that discussion with the patient.
0: And what does NICE guidance recommend on the treatment choice for sufferers?
1: Yeah, first line, it tends to recommend lifestyle interventions. So a very simple, basic advice around healthy eating. You know, if the patient is slightly overweight, obese, recommending weight loss, you know, avoiding trigger foods, eating smaller meals and, you know, Trying to eat evening meals three to four hours before going to bed. You know, they're smokers going for smoking cessation and reducing alcohol consumption. If they are stressed or anxious, you know, we should really be trying to help consider how we can reduce those sort of responses because that can exacerbate the symptoms. Now, if those basic lifestyle interventions don't help, then obviously, you know, we would need to step up into pharmacological therapy, which would start with alginates and moving on to PPIs or histamine receptor antagonists. So that's what often NICE recommends. And and also, you know, if patients are on regular medications, then we should be reviewing what medications they're on. So if they're Commonly prescribed or taken over the counter NSAIDs, they're you know taking regular corticosteroids through their prescription or bisphosphonates or mucolytics, theophylline, certain antibiotics they're on a long term course for for whatever reason, such as macrolides or tetracyclines, um, anticholinergics as a class of drugs or you know these are common medications that can exacerbate the symptoms so it's quite important. If we get the chance to ask about the medication, we can review that. And I just wanted to go slightly back onto the lifestyle interventions, if I may. I think we know about these lifestyle interventions. It's really around understanding patients' behaviour. And if we can really hack into or provide some tips to the patients on how they can improve their daily behaviour to help alleviate the symptoms that often works really well. Just understanding what their daily life is and then really try to help anchor some of the habits that could help them, I think could be really, really useful for them.
0: And what are the benefits of an alginate and antacid formulation as first-line treatment for sufferers?
1: Antacids have been used for decades to treat dyspepsia, mainly symptoms of gourd such as heartburn and really has proven efficacy in neutralizing stomach acid now the neutralizing capacity does vary depending on the kind of salt used so i won't go too much into it but the type of salt you use and the metal you use also affects the solubility of the medication which can affect the onset and duration of action so it's important that we understand that. So, for example, sodium and potassium salts, you know, are most highly soluble, which make them quite quick and short-acting, whereas magnesium and aluminium salts are less soluble. So they have a slightly slower onset of action, but a greater duration. Now, alginates are very useful for patients suffering from heartburn and reflux as well. And as mentioned earlier, it's often used as a first line product. Now, when alginate first comes into contact with the gastric acid, uh, the alginate sort of precipitates out, which forms a sponge like matrix that floats on top of the stomach contents. So nowadays, we see commonly products containing alginate in combination with antacids, which help not only does neutralize the stomach acid, but really does help alleviate the symptoms and help relieve that. Now, the good thing about these combination products is it can be used as required basis. Ideally, long-term use of it, it's not really recommended for good because if the symptoms are still occurring, that means we're not getting down to the root cause of it. And actually, we should at that point be really thinking about Stepping up therapy to either PPIs, H2RAs. The other thing I just wanted to mention is we've got to be mindful of the salt content of the alginate slash antacid combination product. So, you know, patients got high blood pressure, which is uncontrolled. It's important that you check the salt content of that product and just explain to the patient that shouldn't really be exceeding recommended dosing. So it's important that we have the back of our mind. And can proton pump inhibitors be
0: recommended for frequent sufferers?
1: Yes, absolutely. And I think this is something that we should be empowering community pharmacists to do more of, actually. Because, as per NICE guidance, uninvestigated dyspepsia should be ideally treated from community pharmacy. So, if alginate and antacid combination is not effective, then we should be using the lowest effective dose of PPI or H2RA to help alleviate those symptoms. So I would definitely encourage community pharmacists and pharmacy technicians to offer patients the lowest possible dose for the shortest duration. Now, if the symptoms are still ongoing, despite using PPIs and you think a dose escalation would be needed, then really we should be referring the patients to the GP. The reason really is, is just to make sure there's nothing else underlying and it's documented in their medical history that they've got this ongoing issue so the patient can be managed appropriately going forward. And are there any other
0: ways we can increase the pharmacist and pharmacy assistant's confidence in recommending these OTC PPIs?
1: You know, the best place to start is knowledge, really. Once you're equipped with the knowledge, I think you'll be definitely confident in providing that advice to the patient and, you know, passing that knowledge on to the patient so they can better understand their condition and empower them to help manage their lifestyle in a way that can help with their symptoms as well. So the key thing is really empower the patient by educating them on their condition, and how these medications work and what it means in a long-term basis. Now, the other thing I wanted to mention is if the patients are taking PPIs and the symptoms are still not managed, you probably want to have in the back of your mind could this be H. pylori? That's often common in resistant cases and more common in sort of areas of a lower socioeconomic background. And generally, the prevalence tends to increase with age. And generally, what tends to happen in primary care is where H. pylori is quite prevalent, what nice guideline tends to recommend is there's one of two options. Either you go down the empiric use of PPIs or you could use the H. pylori eradication regimen if the prevalence is high in that area. So that's one thing to bear in mind and, you know, could be another thing to refer for the patient. Also, I suppose the other bit where community pharmacists can really be empowered is deprescribing PPIs. Quite often, we see patients' PMR records on day in, day out, and we know how long they've been on certain medications for. We have often a very good rapport with the patients. So just having that review of the medication could be really, really useful in talking to the patients. Have you considered why you're taking this PPI? Have you made the relevant lifestyle interventions? And if their symptoms are well controlled with it, then we could consider deprescribing provided there's no other past medical history or contraindication to do so. Because these medications do have long-term effects, such as causing electrolyte disturbances or acute kidney injury and osteoporosis, etc. So I think that's something very valuable a community pharmacist can provide. And often if you look at various deprescribing tools for PPIs, when we are slowly weaning them off, often the alginate antacid combination is prescribed to them to help alleviate any symptoms that come from sort of rebound hypersecretion as a result of stopping the PPIs or H2RAs so i think that's another place that we can make an intervention for our patients
0: that was micken patel the lead pharmacist for gastroenterology at imperial college healthcare nhs trust In this podcast, we discussed the definition of reflux and how this should be managed according to NICE guidelines. Micken also discussed red flag symptoms which can be identified in the pharmacy and which would require referral. And he also talked about the place in therapy for over-the-counter proton pump inhibitors. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe to CND Podcasts on SoundCloud or your preferred app. Thank you for listening.